The first reading is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, and it can be found on page 1144 of the Pew Bibles. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8, and that's on page 1170 in the Pew Bibles. So Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those whose by nature are not God. But now you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning your backs to those weak and turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, for somehow I have, that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong, as you know it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me 
as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ, Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so, and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. And verse 1 of chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is the word of God. Would you like to turn to page 1170, uh, Galatians? Uh, just as you're doing that, to say a huge thank you to all those who took part in the Pampa Day. Uh, Mary Jane, in particular, it was her brainchild, together with others. So a huge thank you for a very special uh, morning. And men, can we not get our act together for a Pampa morning for us? But we leave it there. Well, here's a question for the new year. Are we going backwards spiritually? Are we going backwards spiritually? The Galatians were in real danger of doing just that, and you can hear Paul's great concern for them in the first few verses of our reading from verse 8 and onwards. And it forces us to consider for ourselves this very, very important question. And just to say it's my very first point Uh, which is verses 8 to 11, about spiritual backsliding. If you turn to the bulletin sheet, you'll see on the back there the outline of the sermon, if you want to follow it. Or can I be very personal? Are you going backwards spiritually? Paul writes of their former life before they had a living relationship with God. It was understandable when they were pagans, verse 8, worshipping those who by nature are not gods. What are the things that are not gods? Well, success, money, career, the family, all the things, the car. So funny, people in Chester Square, they take photographs of cars. As long as it goes and it's cheap to run, I don't care. It was understandable when they were pagans. But they'd stopped worshipping these non-gods when they'd come to know Almighty God, and quite apart from anything else, their old way of life was slavery, and there was no possibility of a personal relationship with a slave master. And he contrasts this with the transformation that had taken place. It's a wonderful verse. Verse 9, Now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, But for some reason, they were turning back, verse 9, to those weak and miserable principles, to their former life of slavery. So what did that involve? The footnote in the NIV Study Bible describes it succinctly like this. A legalistic trust in rituals, in moral achievement, in law, 
in good works, or even in cold, dead orthodoxy. A legalistic trust in rituals, in moral achievement, in law, in good works, or even in cold, dead orthodoxy. And they were beginning to show their return to legalism by their meticulous observation of religious festivals and rituals. That's what verse 10 is talking about. Special days, months, seasons, and years. He's referring to the weekly Sabbath observance, the monthly new moon celebrations, the great annual festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and the sabbatical years, one in seven, when certain legal obligations were released. And the danger is that when someone believes that merely by observing these special days and seasons, that that is enough, just turning up, that earns them the right to a relationship and a blessing from Almighty God. They've earned it. They deserve it. God owes them. They're here in church on a Sunday. That's enough, isn't it? One commentator highlights the implications of this attitude and its deficiency. Jesus did not say, I am come that they may have religion, which is an external matter. Rather, he came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's all about an internal living relationship. And John Stott, in his commentary, gives the example of John Wesley, John Wesley, as you know, the founder of Methodism. He describes him. He was orthodox in belief, religious in practice, upright in conduct, full of good works. He visited those in prison and workhouses. They provided food, clothing, and education for children in the slums. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath as well as Sunday. They went to church and Holy Communion. They gave alms, searched the scriptures, fasted, and prayed. But, concludes Stott, They were bound in the fetters of their own religion. And here's the point. For they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And John Wesley, a few years later, in his own words, came to trust in Christ, in Christ alone only for salvation. And reflecting on his time before he became a Christian, he wrote, I had, even then, the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And so this puts in context, verse 11, Paul's conclusion, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. And wasted they indeed were if the Galatians were returning to a spiritual life based on legalism rather than a living relationship with God. So how does Paul address the problem of the backsliding Galatians? And it's my second point. He reviews their situations in two ways. He reminds them of their past, where they've come from spiritually, and then secondly, he considers where they stand now. Reminding them of their past and where they've come from, remembering is a key theme throughout the Bible because often there are lessons from our past walk with God. Especially true of God's people rescued from slavery in Egypt, protected, looked after by God in the wilderness. Yet, instead of remembering God's goodness, God's care, they forgot his love, 
they forgot his care with tragic consequences. Grumbling, moaning, complaining. Paul goes back to their shared experience as he urgently asks the Galatians to review their situation. You can see this is no academic point. Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers, become like me. He's longing for them to become like him in his Christian life and faith. He wanted them to enjoy the freedom that he had, as well as being released from the grip of the false teachers. And in verse 12, he continues, for I became like you. When he visited them, he identified with them to such an extent that although he was a Jew, he became a Gentile whilst he was with them. There was a close relationship between them as a result of their time together. And there had been some challenging things about his visit. For a start, he hadn't been well, verse 13. And his illness seemed to have shown some rather unpleasant symptoms. My poor wife is streaming with cold. Poor thing. You know, tears streaming. She takes Lemsip. Nothing seems to be working at the moment. She's in bed, feeling miserable. Well, I don't think it was that. I think it was worse. It had, I think, something to do with his eyes, because in verse 15 he writes, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. But we don't really know what it was. But it didn't look nice. Though it was a trial to them, they welcomed him and honored him, look at verse 14, as an angel of God, as if he was God's messenger to them. But that was then. Had he now become their enemy, verse 16, simply because as their friend, he had not been afraid to tell them the truth. They were in danger. They were going backwards. Well, I think at the beginning of a new year, it's good for us to review our spiritual condition, to look back, to remember from where we started. Have we grown lukewarm or half-hearted as Christians, as the church in Laodicea is described in Revelation 3? Have we lost our first love for Jesus, as had the church in Ephesus, who are commanded to repent and do the things you did at first? So having reviewed the past and where they'd come from, he then reviews their current direction. They were in real danger of turning off the main safe road onto a minor unmarked track that only led to a dead end. Couldn't they see, verse 17, the difference between his attitude towards them and the false teachers? They want to win you over, but for no good. And the false teachers didn't want any rivals. They wanted the Galatians, and note this, to be zealous for them. Not zealous for Jesus, but to follow them. I think it's always a good test when visiting a church or considering any ministry to ask this simple question. Who is the central focus of attention here? Is it the local leader who is a celebrity? Or is it Jesus? John Stott uh, never wanted his ministry in America. In America, you call it the John Stott ministry, but he hated that. He said, no, it's the Jesus ministry. Who takes center stage? 
And it hurts Paul that they were heading the wrong way. I never understand why people don't see Paul's heart sometimes. They're so vicious about the Apostle Paul. You can't read Galatians and not see how much he loves them. Verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Goodness me, now some of you know that about that. I don't. But it looks to him as if he's got to go through the whole painful process of helping them to become disciples of Jesus all over again. And to change the analogy, they were rather like recalcitrant children who refused to work at school. They're going to have to repeat a year or maybe more. And he longs that they should grow up into a mature faith, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ and growing up into him who is the head, that is Christ, is how he put it in writing to the Ephesians. He is, in conclusion, verse 20, perplexed about them because they shouldn't be behaving as they are now, having started so well. So, here's the question for us. Are we growing into a mature Christian faith? Or having started enthusiastically, are we becoming a little cooler, a little more distant from Jesus Christ? For make no mistake, having an immature faith means that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to being tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, as Paul again wrote to the Ephesians. Now, I'm going to make a prediction about 2017. Are you ready for this? The Church of England will indeed be tossed back and forth and blown by every wind of teaching in 2017. And the only way to avoid serious seasickness is to know what the Bible really teaches and not what people tell you it teaches or tell you it means. So faced with the temptations of Satan, Jesus came through his test by quoting accurately what Scripture said. He replied three times, It is written. It is written. So we can avoid that sort of confusion by reading our Bibles for ourselves. God has made his mind known to us. Yes, there are some mysteries and puzzles, but as somebody once said, it's not the things that I don't understand that are the problem, it's the things I do understand. And it implies that if we want to know God's mind, we can find it by turning to the whole counsel of God. It's here. So, Paul firstly identifies the Galatians are in real danger of going backwards spiritually. He then secondly reviews their situation from the perspectives of their shared past and now currently where they are. And wouldn't that be depressing if we ended there? But I have a third encouraging point. Paul encourages them to go forward to choose freedom and not slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. 
John Humphreys has been an interviewer on the BBC's Today programme for 30 years, and he told the story of an interview he had with a politician early in his career. And when he asked them about the essence of their faith, the interviewer replied, choice. And they continued, the fundamental choice is the right to choose between good and evil. And the fundamental reason for being on this earth is so to improve your character that you are fit for the next world. Now, if this was a Christmas quiz, I suspect some of you would have known that it was our former Prime Minister, Lady Thatcher. And surely she is correct in emphasizing the importance of choice. The trouble with the Galatians was that having made the correct choice by initially welcoming Paul, they were now in danger of making a seriously wrong choice by reverting to legalism. Now, without the benefit of a more in-depth conversation with Lady Thatcher, it seems to me as if in the second part of that quotation she was veering towards legalism rather than the freedom that God offers us by his grace. Page 8. Where does that freedom come from? Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. This freedom was won for us on the cross, which is why I chose our first passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Would you turn back to it to page 1144? Page 1144. And I've quoted two verses from this passage. It's a wonderful passage. Paul puts it graphically in verse 23. Christ crucified a stumbling block and foolishness, but to those whom God has called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. A crucified leader was not the triumphant political messiah the Jews were expecting. And for the Gentiles, it was unthinkable that someone executed as a criminal could be the saviour. And this morning, we need to be reminded how unthinkable and unacceptable the Christ was then. For it is increasingly becoming unthinkable and unacceptable today. That God should choose as the way to freedom, Christ crucified. But, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And the Corinthians were living examples of this. Their rescue by God did not depend on them being important, influential, aristocratic, or wise. But they were none of those things. It was all of God's grace, God's undeserved love, unearned by anything they could have done to expect it as of right. And that undermines the view that we can contribute to making ourselves fit for heaven. We can never adequately, in our own strength, improve sufficiently to make us a candidate for heaven. Which is why there's no place for boasting. No place for boasting about our cleverness, uh, about ourselves. There's no place for talking about our success. No glory in ourselves. No, our glory, our boasting, verse 31, should be about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what did he achieve on the cross? It's verse 30. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus' death redeemed us from a life of slavery. If you redeem something, you free it. He bought us our freedom. He paid for us. He took our place. He is our ransom. Ransom and redeemed, redemption, wonderful Bible words. They express, in a sense, a mystery, but a reality. And in order to accept this priceless gift of freedom, we have to be honest that we're truly enslaved by ourselves, a prison of our own making. Can't we sympathize with Paul's groaning confession, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do? Isn't that a common experience? We need to come to our senses, as the prodigal son did, to turn back from a life of legalism, the road of the Galatians, the road that is a dead end and leads nowhere, to the road of grace and freedom. For if we accept Jesus' redemption, it means our relationship with our Heavenly Father is restored and secured forever. We are those who are forgiven by him. We know we are loved because he has adopted us into his family as his sons and daughters. We are at peace with God. And also we know where we stand with God. We are not unsure or insecure about our relationship with him, and that is not presumption or arrogance because it rests not on us, but on all that Christ on the cross achieved for us. Incidentally, I've never quite understood, if you love someone, your child, do you want them to be uncertain about your love, to keep them guessing? No, no, it's Monday. I'm going to leave you guessing whether I love you or not. No, surely a father, a parent wants their children to know their unconditional love. Isn't that true? If that's true of us as parents, surely it's true of our our Heavenly Father. What sort of father is it who wants us to be unsure as we approach the end of our physical lives? And a life lived under God's grace, his compassionate love, is a life of joy. That is one of the saddest comments Paul makes. I wonder if you spotted it. As he considers the legalism into which the Galatians are trapped and the slavery that will follow. Chapter 4, verse 15. What has happened to all your joy? What has happened to all your joy? So at the beginning of a new year... Who knows what it's going to bring? What we do know is that God's grace, one for us on the cross, never changes, always the same, and is the way of joy, is the way of life. Legalism is the way 
of religion. It's the way of death. How could the Galatians have been so stupid, having once tasted the path of joy? And so, as we consider and review our own walk with Jesus this new year, may we discover or rediscover the joy that comes from the freedom Christ won for us on the cross. God's amazing grace. We're going to have a moment of quiet. These are deep things. These are wonderful things. These help us set our compass at the beginning of the new year. I'm going to ask the band and Tom to play the tune of Amazing Grace in a moment. Just we're going to have a moment of quiet first. What is it God wants to say to us? Are we frankly in danger of backsliding? Have we not understood God's amazing grace for us, which changes everything so that we can know God or wonderfully are known by God? Let us pray.